Hello there. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. You might be asking yourself, what is The Last Thing I Saw? I'll tell you that in a moment, but first, let me introduce myself. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and like a lot of people, I like to talk about movies with my friends. So I looked up a couple of good buddies of mine, Clinton Crute and Devika Girish, and we talked about what we've been watching lately. Simple as that. Our movie set list this time includes the radical work of the late Sarah Maldoror, a deep cut from Robert Altman, a very high-profile communist epic, and a recent short film from Jonathan Glazer. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and thank you for listening. Did you throw the lever? Are we on? Is this yes. live? We're here? We're live. We're okay, here. just want to make sure. Just want to make sure. Wouldn't want to lose any of this mojo, this energy that we have, this beautiful thing that we're doing. Hello. Okay, gonna... I'm already getting fatigued. Jumping. Yeah, you're tired. Uh, there's only so much we can deal with. <laughs> Life is hard enough. Let's start the fire. <laughs> that was the start. I was kind of getting a rolling start. Anyway, hello. My name's Nick Rapold, and this is The Last Thing I Saw, a dandy podcast for your enjoyment about movies, uh, what we've been watching. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to just sit down around the fire where I've burned all my possessions for warmth and talk about the movies that I remember seeing when I was last conscious. And to do that, I like to bring friends, friends into this circle. And who better than these two very special individuals here <laughs> in this room right now? Uh, I'm, I'm Clint Crute, and I'm here with Nick in his circle. <laughs> of trust that's right circle trust and and i'm devika and i'm also part of this little party of friends discussing film we've 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 poured our our virtual beverages we're having virtual snacks it's really so close to the real thing that i might forego the real thing entirely and just live online that's what i'll do well, in this fake, uh, in this uh, deluded uh, reality that we live in, uh, we draw enjoyment from uh, movies. Is that That's true? That's right. It is. It is very true. Thanks, Devika, for refocusing us. And and I, I I do have to say that um, each of you have been watching some very interesting things, which I, I can't wait for people to hear about. Uh, if I had to choose, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll your your favorite. My friend. favorite. <laughs> my favorite friend i'm sorry to do this in public but devica if you could just start um because uh, well, you've been watching what, what the hell <laughs> it's it's awkward fair enough fair enough you'll have a chance to earn points in this episode Clint, and then uh, I'm gonna, nick can reassess I'm, I, this is I'm getting more and more dystopian by the minute <laughs> I, which one is, of us will will get like some sort of food coupon at the end of this <laughs> in order to keep ourselves alive by it's, it's winning big. the winning the friend game it's basically the roller bowl of podcasts uh it's it's pretty relentless um, i did basically just describe the concept of having a job though so yeah <laughs> <laughs> um well before this gets any darker um uh so devika you've been watching a, a really um fascinating body of work um recently uh and uh, for a filmmaker who actually unfortunately passed away recently as well 
Um, so, uh, you know, would love to hear more about that. Sure thing. Um, I think body of work isn't quite right. More like little limbs, little bits, choice bits. Uh, this is sounding weirdly cannibal. It's kind of disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, the, I have been watching the films of uh, Stera Malderor, the French filmmaker who was really involved in the negritude movement and was sort of like a... a an activist filmmaker who made a lot of work on uh, decolonization in Africa. And as Nick mentioned, you know, she passed away quite recently, uh, which, you know, was, is really this uh, huge loss, I think, to world cinema. And, you know, I, the name of this podcast is the last thing I saw. And this is literally what I was watching and doing before I hopped on this was, um, watching three of her short films that have been put online by the feminist film journal Another Gaze. Uh, they organized this sort of event with the help of Maldoror's daughters. Uh, and three these three shorts were made available to stream for the, like the last three days, I believe. And uh, these online screenings kind of culminated in a symposium today uh, where her daughters spoke about you know, their memories of their mother and her um, sort of philosophy towards her work. And then there were readings of uh, writers like Cesare, Fanon, uh, Senghor, and, you know, other writers who were working in that same sort of sphere of anti-colonial resistance and negritude and pan-Africanism. And, uh, and then there was like a roundtable discussion. And I have to say, I mean, it was really it's been a bit hard for me to uh, log in and kind of plug into all these zoom things that have been happening you know lectures and symposia and whatnot but this was a real pleasure because um, I think she's a Maldoror is a really monumental filmmaker whose work still remains uh, unseen and and little known and that's something her daughters were talking about how um, you know, she made m many films. I, I can't recall the number, but I think they said, you know, including unfinished uh, and sort of in development uh, projects, I think like 40, diff 40 cinematic projects. And many of them are, you know, lost or in obscurity or unrestored. So her daughters are actually working to, uh, you know, try to create an archive of her work. And she's best known, I guess, for Sambizanga, which... Uh, was made in the 1970s, which is about the Angolian uh, War of Independence, the anti-colonial uh, movement there. Um, but the films that were uploaded online were shorts, and they, the first one, I think, is also, you know, some people might have heard of it, called Monangambe. And that was the only one I'd seen before because it, it was released, it was restored by Arsenal, the German company, and... Um, released as part of a box set a couple years ago, a box set of anti-colonial uh, works from that period. Uh, and the other, uh, in addition to that, there, um, this like event also had, I believe the English title is Until the Dogs and the Dogs Are Silent. Let me just look this up, sorry. And the Dogs Were Silent. Um, and the third one was called Leon G. Damas, uh, and that's a documentary about the poet and politician uh, by the same name. And really, you know, all three films are very distinct from each other. 
really, really inventive and just they feel so ahead of their time and they feel so like specific and rich. Uh, and I think they're kind of all, it's interesting, they're all sort of in that surrealist mode of questioning, you know, cinematic language or verbal language, really playing with what images and sounds can do together. You know, none of them are in any sort of traditional narrative mode. Even the third one, which is a documentary about this uh, particular figure, uh, you know, who is described in the film by uh, Leopold, uh, by Senghor, who appears in the film along with Cesare, both of them talking about Damas. And he's described by them as a man who really lived negritude and this like very important uh, Guyanese poet. Uh, and it's it's a really like, I, I don't know, just a very warm and a, a, it's a documentary that feels very emotionally accessible, but at the same time, it's, um, you know, not made in any traditional way that you would imagine a biopic or a documentary about a person. Uh, it's kind of, kind of combining like ethnographic images of life in Guyana and conversations that Maldoror had with people there about Damas and has these talking head segments uh, with Senghor and Cesare and also has like uh, elements of Damas's poetry that are overlaid, you know, uh, on these images. So something, there's just something like very open about her work, very... Uh, structurally, structurally, narratively rigorous, very inviting, but also that feels like formally, you know, really, really innovative and precise. And I just really enjoyed watching them. Monangambe is, I thought, was especially also striking. It's about uh, the abuse of Angolan prisoners during the anti-colonial movement by uh, Portuguese civil servants. And it's it kind of shows the violence and torture in this figurative way, you know, as uh, kind of focusing on the space of the prison and the movements of the bodies within it, which are juxtaposed with a really phenomenal jazz score by the Chicago Art or Art Ensemble of Chicago. Because she was really, Maldor was really interested in jazz uh, for her daughters as also a political expression. Wait, and what year was that? That, that is, I think, 1968. Let me just look that up to be sure. It's it's before uh, Angolan independence, I believe. So, yeah, it's 1968. So, um, you know, just it's like a film of the moment from that time, like really part of that anti-colonial canon of filmmaking and very striking, you know, uh, just depiction of carcerality and also like language like one of the uh sort of uh, events that the narrative hinges on is this is the fact that there's a word complay that means one thing in the language of the colonizers and it means something else in the context of the colonized people it's the name of a dish mm. but to the colonizers it's it means combo like a pant and shirt combo and that creates this confusion that leads to violence so kind of thinking about those the ways in which language gets reappropriated you know in these contexts and um how these gaps of comprehension become gateways to violence um so yeah i mean and the second film was also like really remarkable i'll just describe it in short um until the sorry i keep mixing messing with the title 
um, and the dogs were silent, which is shot inside the Museum of Mankind in France, which is an anthropology museum with mostly artifacts from African countries. And it's a dramatization of a text by uh, Césaire about colonial revolt and the role of violence and rage, you know, within um, the sentiment of revolution and renewal. And it's like, it's just the actor performs it like a monologue or, you know, sort of like a stage play, but interacting with the objects in the museum and other characters. And Maldor herself appears as like a maternal figure. And uh, that one also really made a big impression on me. Um, So, yeah, I mean, they were just... I'm so grateful for the chance to have watched them and to commemorate her work. And I hope more films of hers become, you know, available. The, her daughters did mention that they're working on certain restorations with Martin Scorsese's foundations um, and the Cinematheque in Bologna. So I'm hoping that happens. And yeah, and the talk Mm. was wonderful too, especially to, you know, hear her daughter's recounting what she was like as a mother you know she was really involved you know she was very politically upfront um often ran into trouble with her films being so outspoken against um you know oppression and colonial systems and how like they learned of Mao's teachings before they knew who Cinderella was and how they encountered Jesus for the first time when they watched Jesus Christ Superstar in London (laughs) And just like how when they were young and they were milling about with all these, you know, very significant African political and historical figures, African and French figures, and only later in life did they understand who their mother really was. Um, So it was lovely to hear all that like context from her life and her approach to her work. Would you have a few words to say about Samizanga in case people don't know about that one? From what I believe, it follows the wife of one of the revolutionaries who's like captured and Im- imprisoned. And, you know, it's, it's sort of this classic thing that happens with political prisoners and happened with political prisoners um, in anti-colonial and insurrectionist movements where, you know, they're disappeared. So he's captured and then no one knows what happens to him. Mm-hmm. And then his wife uh, goes around, you know, from jail to jail and just trying to, like, uh, figure out what happened to him, where he is. So it it is kind of very distinctive and uh, groundbreaking, I think, in the fact that it follows the anti-colonial struggle, which, you know, in many places, in, in, the, in many representations and histories is still like such a masculine, um, described as, you know, a very masculine effort, like led by men and this sort of militaristic uh, kind of uh, process. And so it depicts, you know, what, uh, the women that were sort of often central or peripheral to these movements, um, what their experience was. So in that way, I think it's a really striking film. And th- that extends, uh, not extends, but that's kind of um, also part of Monangambe, which preceded Sambizanga and in many ways like inspired Sambizanga because it's also about the same anti-colonial movement. And it also... It only briefly features the spouse of the, you know, um, prisoner that the short focuses on who's tortured. Uh, But in those brief scenes, she's shown waiting for him. And then when he arrives, there's this kind of extended sequence of them embracing. And Mm -hmm. she says to him, can I bring you a combo? And she's talking about food. And that's what's like later misinterpreted. And so there's this like really beautiful moment of intimacy and, you know, what it means to have 
um, a loved one be in those circumstances, what it means to be able to only share that intimacy under and under the gaze of, of a colonial officer. Um, right. So yeah, that, that feminine and feminist side is definitely, I think, important to her work. Hmm. I, I was just reading about her name. Uh, it, it seems a pretty punk thing to, to take on uh, the last name of Moldoror. I, I don't know. I just think that's cool. That's the extent of my comment. Um, taken from, I guess, a surrealist uh, work by Comte de Lautremont, um, which I don't yeah. claim a familiarity with, but I mean, just the idea of taking that, uh, given the, the, the narrator in, in that um, book is pretty remarkable. Yeah, and her daughters did mention that as like one of the ways in which they knew early on that she was like, she was so particular about the way she expressed herself and who she was in the world. Uh, another thing they recounted was, I think when they were filming Leon uh, G. Damas and Senghor is in that film and how she would make Senghor do things like uh, she asked him to like move a mask or a painting, I believe, from, you know, one room to the next because she thought it would just it would look nicer. Um, and they were laughing about the fact that, you know, it didn't matter to her if she was talking to a head of state or... As, you know, just a member of her film crew, you know, aesthetics and art and expression were, were so, were like the motivating forces for everything she did. So a lot um, to explore there. And obviously, uh, you know, a, a number of films that I, I hope we'll, we'll all be able to watch. Uh, a, when we're all able to watch movies in theaters, um, but also, uh, you know, as, as these films are restored um, and, and, and shown more widely. Um, well, where where do we go from 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 there uh, exactly? Uh, I, I I think Clint, uh, if we we could sort of jump trains here to to another twentieth um, century um, juggernaut of of politics, uh, if if you yeah, that is uh, Warren Beatty right up there with Sarah Maldera. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah, right. I know. I know. Everybody thinks that it's. I'm going to say Bullworth, but I didn't watch Bullworth. <laughs> I haven't in a long time. Um, I recently watched Reds, um, because I was craving kind of an epic, and a, and an epic of a historical epic. And um, yeah, Reds is the story of uh, Jack Reed, an author who wrote a book about the Russian Revolution called uh, Ten Days That Shook the World." I believe. Oh, right, Ten Days book. That Shook the World. Yeah. Uh, Jack Reed is played by uh, Warren Beatty, who directed the film. Uh, uh, film Reds, I think, was released in eighty-one. Oh, eighty-one. There you go. Yeah. And so uh, th- the movie starts in um, in before World War One, and when he meets Louise Brooks, Jack Jack Reed, uh, Louise Brooks, played by Diane Keaton, and um, they begin this kind of on and off again romance but they're very much passionately in love but they're kind of bohemians living in new york together hanging out with emma goldman and various other revolutionaries played by you know uh recognizable character actors of the 70s and 80s and um so then this this film follows them their romance over the years through past world war one and their various political activities Reed becomes an organizer for the I, for the Wobblies, the IWW, and kind of the film quickly glosses over that, I think, and then goes and then he becomes uh, he travels to Russia after the revolution and meets up with Louise again there and becomes sort of a a uh, 
is kind of roped into the uh, international and becomes a representative of the of uh, the Soviet state and is traveling around giving speeches uh, in like I think probably 1919 1920. So throughout this, there's this romance, this, this uh, narrative is going on in which they they see each other occasionally and they meet up and then they fight and they you know they cheat on each other. Um, and the most the most uh, important affair that's is is Louise's affair with Eugene O'Neill, played by Jack Nicholson, is sort of a sneering and creepy, but in, but you know charismatic, uh, drunk. <laughs> and uh yeah to me the most interesting aspect of this movie though is are these interstitial interviews with um participants in in history these sort of old these little old people basically and like henry miller i think is one of them among many others uh, who are not identified but they'll just be kind of like you know with a black background behind them they'll just kind of uh reminisce about their own mm. experience of the of the time period and what they remember about Jack Reed and Louise Brooks and so it's a mix of kind of uh, f- these former radicals now like you know 100 years old they're just these like l- cute little old people <laughs> uh, just kind of gossiping about uh, about this these bohemians in 1915 you know who like the people who were interested in free love and like these people were part of that same group there but now they're just these little old old uh old people (laughs) peering (laughs) peering at you through like three inch thick glasses um and so like that documentary aspect i think is really really interesting the movie itself struck me that on this watching is like a little bit more soap opera y than I remember. And especially like, yeah, I don't want to be in what, in what sense can you expand on that? Yeah. I think that the, the, um, the, the romance storyline and the, and the political storyline is just sort of like, it's just very reductive, both, Mm. both in terms of the politics of what, of, of what and history and the history of what they're experiencing, but also like the emotions of these two characters. I think that the and I think that that's the result of the script just not really being being very rich. I think they're kind of relying on star star power a little bit more at the time. Well, it's <laughs> almost like the stars. I mean, they the using st- having stars like that is is right. Is, it's just a way of conveying like the the the, the depth. It's a the, gesture. Yeah, well, just the f- the force of these personalities and the force of figures like that who are able to seemingly move mountains against I- just incredible odds against more than odds against entire ideologies. Right. Um, uh, it's also interesting to me just how they've become types, though. I think maybe that's that's also maybe why it was sort of soap opery. Yeah. I think that like because you have this Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty is just a Warren Beatty type, like a blubbering guy. Of, you know, this tall like handsome man who kind of fumbles over his words and doesn't really know what he wants who then said who but has a deep has a true talent and if a woman could just release that talent then you know then he would be able to participate in the great moments in history and like that's kind of the the way it plays out and like the woman is obvious like louise brooks character it's just like it's almost like annie hall 
<laughs> set in like at the Russian Revolution, <laughs> like without the comedy. Yeah, it's and there's and that's just sort of like started, st- just kind of got under my skin a little bit as the movie went on. Yeah, I I yeah, it it does seem that there. I don't know. There's there's something also about him as an actor that it, it, there's something of his pers- his persona that goes into a number of his his roles like that. Right, right. That, that you're, you're you're describing really well. I, I, it's, it, it still was pretty, it uh, still is pretty in, in, in intoxicating somehow. And uh, now if you'll indulge me, I'll just remember when I did actually interview him on, on, uh, uh-huh. okay. Tell us <laughs> about uh, when you interviewed Warren Beatty. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Geez, <laughs> tough audience. God, uh, every like, time with the Beatty interview, I, anything I you could, I walked into this one. I got, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I should have known. I, I should have s- known what I was in for. You think it was an accident that you watched Reds? I mean, come on. You're um, programming my, yeah, my uh, algorithm. There's <laughs> really not much of a story here. Um, well, I, there we were on on SS Beatty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Anchored right. up All with right. St. Tropez. No, it was just interviewing him for, uh, for his... Um, uh, what is it called? Rules Don't Apply, which is a movie that was not very popular, but um, was a good chance to, um, you know, talk to Warren Beatty. Uh, it, you know, we, we uh, basically it was, uh, it was interesting because at a certain point I realized he was actually just taking like a nighttime drive while he was talking um, and <laughs> for an interview. And, and I, I just immediately became like paranoid that like, you know, he would be somehow you know this could be, a, be the last yeah, this could yeah. Be it for, for you, would, you would be the reason no, exactly because like, you befuddled him with a really hardball question i i just that he would just be you know a lapse of, of attention the, the, the way any of us might have and we're trying to do two things at once and i would just i would just hear you know the, anyway so fortunately that did not happen um, well did you glean any insights into reds anything we um we didn't we didn't we didn't get to that i did ask him about um i didn't ask him directly but i it was he was able to comment on kind of the the election which was was looming at uh, at that point um and yeah just just that it was it was not looking good and and that you know you you yeah you kind of had a uh he, he was cautious, but just have a, you know, an individual that is, there's the empty suit basically. Um, and, and also kind of empty, empty morality, um, in, in terms of, um, Wait, are you talking leader. about Warren Beatty? No, oh, okay. no, no. Talking about, um, uh, just talking about our, our dear president. Um, yeah. Anyway, but so that was, that was exciting. Yeah. He's a movie star, you know, and so there was still a frisson to, to that. Um, oh, for sure. No, I actually think that the movie builds to this amazing. The ending is really actually uh, genuinely moving. And um, I'd say the last like 10, 15 minutes of the movie are, are, are pretty remarkable. Um, well, I, uh, while we're in our time machine to the, the turn of the 80s, uh, I, I recently uh, watched a, a deep cut in the Robert Altman um, filmography, uh, which, to be totally honest, I've been avoiding finishing for many years now. Um, uh, that movie is Quintet, 
Um, so you've partially watched Quintet. Oh yeah, before. I've I've started Quintet uh, a couple of times before, and just uh, you know, if, as it's it just starts in the middle of a snowstorm. I mean, the whole Earth is covered in in ice. Um, it's 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 some it's a dystopia. Somehow the world has frozen over. It's never really explained where. Did you or watch? How. Uh, did you um, watch it on that day, uh, like last week, that it snowed or hailed and? Um, it New might York. have been the same day. I'm kind of having, I kind of went into a trance watching this movie because it's, it's like, I don't know, it's like the opium scenes in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, or like it's just, right. Um, it's like the ending of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, basically. Um, people kind of trudging through the snow, um, slow motion chases. Uh, not really, not even a lot of that. But the basic premise is that the world, uh, you know, has had some awful disaster or an event as 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 a billionaire um planning for the future might call it has had a major event of some sort uh leaving very few survivors and all that the survivors do with their time apparently uh, other than dress up like uh i don't know henry the eighth for some reason in these like you know pompadour hats and things and, and shaggy um coats they play a game called quintet uh which is a kind of game of a game of chance uh, using dice and, and, and little <laughs> trinkets and tokens, uh, apparently just swept off shelves from anonymous thrift stores. That's all they do with their time. And they still have thrift stores, though, which means bodes well for the future. The world is a, is, a, is a thrift store. There's nothing but thrift. It's 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 I don't it's indescribable as I mean you know a number of movies the 70s was like a big time for dystopias generally like you know whatever everything Soylent Green or Omega Man or yeah. you know um, which I've also watched recently for some reason but um, this is Altman's uh, take on on the end game end times basically and end game really because it's it's like an assassination game as well because people. It's it's not really clear to me. Maybe I, I I didn't read the instructions thoroughly enough, but somehow people, in addition to playing the game, are also like murdering each other. Um, and uh, yeah, it's and there's it's an international cast. Like Fernando Rey is the uh, you probably know from like Bunuel movies. He's mm-hmm. he plays the umpire for this game, so he's this kind of trickster figure, which he's very good at. You know, always a cocked eyebrow. Um, and Paul Newman. Is, was a hunter. He, he went to hunt seals in the south, and then he came north and, and came to this city. Oh, I also was thinking about it, um, Devika, when you were talking about the Maldoror movie that was filmed in a museum of, museum of man or something. Mm-hmm. Um, because this was filmed on the Montreal Expo site. Um, so it's this weird combination of like late 70s, like, I don't know, scaffolding and skywalks. Uh, uh, and 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 also, kind of, um, what's the word? Distressed production design. Apparently, they the whole thing was constantly covered in ice. They would spray it down, so people were like breaking limbs all the time. Um, Jesus. And and Altman, I think there's a grain of truth to this idea of the future because instead of trying to survive, everyone is just c- kind of backstabbing and devolving into these petty political squabbles that are all based on little short-term head rushes head rushes of like i won um, but there's nothing to win there's nothing left um 
So that I mean, that's that's quintet in, in, in a nutshell. Not having watched it, the, it just sounds so strange. It sounds strange. It's very um, like it sounds both like very minor and apocalyptic at the same time. Yeah. yeah. What it lacks is it doesn't have like the urgency that a lot of apocalyptic movies have. Um, uh, it's it's pretty deliberate in its pacing. Uh, yeah, I think it's kind of famously deliberate in its yeah, pacing. but it's it's still fascinating to just do something that that is it's not trying to excite you about you know all the weird possibilities of the future and how we're all going to be Robinson Crusoe trying to survive. It's right. really just relentless that these people are just frittering away their final hours. Uh, on, these, on like a useless game kind of yeah on a useless game which seems to confer like really high s- social stature on people but they're all just gonna die anyway and uh mm. yeah that was oh, and i guess another piece of background for it is that um i mean this is the age of the nuclear winter being in, uh, you know uh, right, in, right. A kind of part of the popular vocabulary i think if I remember correctly, around now, uh, around the time of this movie was when, there, you know, it became common knowledge that if there was a nuclear war, not only would most people be obliterated, um, but anyone who survived would be living in a kind of permanent winter as a result of fallout, like obscuring or otherwise like flummoxing the weather. And I do think, doesn't Paul Newman wear like a kind of uh, Soviet style, like, fur hat yeah coat and like he looks like he's like trudging through the snow like he's going to some sort of committee meeting yeah moscow he does have a certain (laughs) siberian style uh going on also it's just a interesting moment for for him i mean that's an actor who is just like at all different eras of his career he's he's i I don't know i just I, i find them really just in, intriguing and and there yeah. he's just he's like just sort of seeming like weathered enough uh, I, I you know i don't know uh, but it's it's tough even for him it's tough a guy with that much charisma to, to put all this across um but you know he that's what this you know late 70s going to the 80s altman just doing all these like go for broke experiments um that don't have the same like you know, they don't all land and they don't always have the same kind of swing to them. I don't know mm-hmm. of, all, of the early 70s stuff, but all still pretty interesting. Yeah. Seems like a big star to just kind of have him walking through the snow most of the movie. Well, you never know. I mean, maybe he figured that, uh, I mean, you know, with all the 70s dystopias or disaster movies, they were often like star-studded affairs. Um, uh, so maybe Newman was like, if I'm going to do one of these, uh, it, might as well be, yeah, it might as well be a Robert Altman movie. But yeah, that that was that's something that's kind of... I, I felt if there was a good moment to watch Quintet, it, it would be during our own current uh, living dystopia. Um, maybe we should turn this podcast into sort of a Quintet. <laughs> Who shall roll the dice? Well, they have this running thing in it. Well, that, I thought that's what was happening with the whole... Uh, playing friend favorites. game <laughs> friend game oh. see you're unwittingly you're losing <laughs> you're already losing ah! <laughs> <laughs> well the, it, it's funny whenever they have a game is there's something about made-up games and movies that are just uh, instantly hilarious i mean it's or, or just made-up systems and movies i mean it, one of the famous ones is like demolition man i think it is with the the two shells do you know the, yeah <laughs> 
I kind of thought about that because in this movie they're constantly talking about um, the sixth man, like because in this game whoever is the sixth man is kind of like batting cleanup or something. But I, I don't know if that's good or bad. I, I guess I would lose quintet is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so I'm glad its future did not come to pass. It's, it's a good thing. Well, yet, yet, yet. That's true. I don't want to. I don't want to speak speak too soon. Oh my god! I didn't. You know, I didn't realize that he did this after slap shot. That kind of <laughs> man. The range. Yeah, within a span of two years. Uh, and well, I recently watched. Yeah. As, well, this reminds me of uh, um, the Long Goodbye and Elliot Gould. And I recently watched another um, Elliot Gould film. The Touch uh, is nineteen seventy one uh, Bergman movie. It is this Bergman's first movie in English. And it's but it takes place in Sweden and it has and it stars Elliot Gould and um BB Anderson and Max von Sydow. And BB Anderson and Max von Sydow are a married couple. Max von Sydow is a doctor and BB Anderson is a housewife. And they meet this man who's a an archaeologist, an American archaeologist, uh studying a church, a nearby church, and that man is Elliot Gould, BB Anderson and and uh, Elliot Gould start a really intense affair. He's kind of violent and kind of emotionally unhinged, uh, Elliot Gould is. But uh, Max von Sydow is very, uh, is very much an emotional rock. Uh, she has to choose between the two of them. And, um, and that's more or less the plot of the movie. And there's this, I guess, religious theme happening. And basically, Elliot Gould is excavating this wooden sculpture of the Madonna that's been discovered in the back of this medieval church. And so there's this primal um, mother love thing happening that he and he's definitely kind of seeking that out and and projecting mm. that on to B.B. Anderson, I think. Mm. And he's uh, the child of um, Holocaust victims. And so he has this kind of haunted past, haunted by uh, European history. And I think the movie was a big flop when it was released, but um, it's quite it's it's quite beautiful. It sounds like it kind of has everything. Like he just <laughs> you just. And I was just thinking, it sounds like a like a perfect melodrama in some ways. Or it is. It's really like it's. It is really. It has everything. It has these scenes with B.B. Anderson sitting in her beautiful Swedish home, which is just like a miracle of design, and just you know a single tear coming down her cheek as she like <laughs> writes a, a <laughs> overwrought love letter to Elliot Gould, who lives in like a dirty hovel somewhere in the middle of town. Um, no, it's great. She's um, B.B. Anderson also in Quintet. Oh, there you go. Oh. Yes. She's 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 actually one of the one of the um, the better players at the game of quintet. Well, she's quite good at she's quite good at the game of of love in this movie. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say acting. <laughs> I thought it was like this. You're gonna make uh, a contrived like that much. Not that not so much. <laughs> it's going too far. Also, to make you feel worse, BB Anderson died just a year ago. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, BB. <laughs> BB, <laughs> forgive me. Oh, I wanted to talk about one more thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because it'll be short, haha. Because it is a short. Um, 
I watched this uh, short film by Jonathan Glazer. Um, speaking of dystopias, um, he of Under the Skin and yes. uh, Birth. What's yes, Birth? Um, sexy Beast, right? Sexy Beast, yeah. Stranglers. Um, this is called The Fall, um, which I think was also the name of a movie by another um, kind of. I don't know. Gazomp, oh yeah, that movie. Gazomped Kunstwerk artist Tarsum. Um, That's right, about like a man who invents fairy tales or something. Yeah, which is yeah. sort of a delightful fantasy, um, I thought. Um, the Fall by Jonathan Glazer is not a delightful fantasy. Um, it is um, a, a dark uh, parable. I'm not sure what you would call it. Um, it's It's pretty easily summarized um it's in a forest there are a group of people wearing masks um one person in a mask is being uh kicked and abused by the other people in the mask and then mm -hmm. they eventually uh string him up and drop him into a hole mm -hmm. that's how it happens <laughs> that's, that's the way it's supposed to happen that's right? the, yeah that's that, uh, and in my experience, that's just so I I I don't know if there was a tie-in to the fact that people are wearing masks that led uh, to the release of this short on online right this second. Um, it's 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 a, it's a it's a genuinely like soul-sapping um, work just because it's alienating in the basic way that's like seeing people in masks do violence to each other can be, uh, and it doesn't really you know. Uh, end on on a hopeful note um it's um, at the same time it's it's like pretty um you know pretty more constrained i'd say than an open and its meaning um but it did make me think of trash humpers uh which i hadn't thought of in a while uh, another movie with uh people you know wearing masks and humping trash i mean there's no humping of trash in the fall i just <laughs> want to clarify they, but there is humping trash and trash humpers I, I hope everyone knows that trash humpers is 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 truth in advertising it's um, probably the best movie i think of, about, about humping trash that i've seen for sure yeah it's true i mean i mean i'll work out a list later it's probably it's up there for sure um, but yeah if that's the fall um i mean you know jonathan glazer uh completists will will want to seek it out and that's on movie right it is on movie yeah i also watched another disturbing movie called jerry seinfeld 23 hours to kill um, but we don't have to talk about uh, that. The second best movie. So about what is that? Like uh, garbage. So is that like some uh, assassin uh, thriller? No, but it does start. It does start with an action sequence. Um, he's. Oh my god. Well, in the sense that it's kind of a goofy joke and kind of self-consciously goofy stunt. It's a stunt. Of course, of course. Straight up stunt, where he's. Is he, he's. I guess he's in a helicopter to go to his show uh, and some reason can't land exactly where he needs to land. So he says, it's okay. I'll get out here. And so he jumps out of the helicopter into like the East river. Um, and he's wearing a wetsuit and uh, that's the joke. Um, that's, um, that's so hmm. how was it? How, <laughs> oh, wow. The movie. I feel like I'm, I'm using, this is like, uh, I'm using all my muscles <laughs> between quintet can I also say I saw Notorious and I'll just, my head will explode. Um, it's, 
I think it's half and half. I think the first half is, you know, solid observational material from the master of observation comedy, um, uh, from the, whatever you said, quadrabillionaire of uh, observation comedy. Um, and it'd be more pleasurable if he wasn't so like self-assuredly pleased with himself, with how he can like reduce the world into. I like the idea of them cl- clipping that solid observational comedy. <laughs> Nick Rippold from the, from the poster. I can, I can dream. He doesn't need me. If there's one thing about Jerry Seinfeld, he doesn't need Nick Rippold. Um, so, but you know, I laughed uh, and did not cry. So that's not bad. Uh, mm. But, th- but I'll tell you what happened is that basically like about halfway through, he starts ragging on the U S postal service. Um, You're like bad timing. Uh, well, not only that, up. for me, that'd be pretty much bad timing anytime because, frankly, I like mail, and I like yeah. the postal service, and I, 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 I and not to be and like things would genuinely break down if the postal service. Oh yeah, couldn't operate. And, yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of I'm like with you there. Yeah, it's a certain guarantor for uh, civil society and and the legal functioning of our Should... society. They'd see the special should have a trigger warning. That's right. That's true. Um, so, uh, but anyway, so I didn't really appreciate that, and it seemed like kind of punching below your weight too, just making fun of, I don't know. <laughs> hard yeah, I mean, he can just workers. like he can just like helicopter packages around the world. That's right. right. <laughs> yeah. Of course, he doesn't have any use for the U.S. Postal Service. Yeah, and I think he was even cold on it in an interview. Like, do you feel like he kind of went overboard for this moment? And I think. He did not take the opportunity to recant. Um, but, but this is about as controversial as you're going to get with the Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, but that special. makes it that makes it all the more like uh, unforced error, though. It's like you like you were doing fine just talking about. Right. Like, I mean, not even trying to be provocative. Yeah. Just some earnestly <laughs> like doing this distasteful thing. Yeah. Um, he really kind of gets yeah. into it. But, uh, you know, there's some other good bits there. You know, observations about couples stuff we can all relate to um what's the deal with dating (laughs) speaking of dating i just remembered that another movie i saw this last week which i won't go into we can save that for next episode but um just want to mention one thing i saw rebels of the neon god the simon liang film because it's uh available on criterion channel now i'd never seen it before and film just made me feel lonely and made me think about how lonely urban life often is even when there's no you know isolation going on because it ends with that this like dial a date thing where the uh, where Lee Kangsheng goes to this like uh, service where you sit in these tiny little booths and these women call you and you can talk to them and if you like you know the conversation you can like schedule a date or something and he just sits there and he just lets the phone ring and then he leaves just a very very melancholic Hmm. uh sort of note of alienation to end on so that's what i have to say about dating well uh, maybe we can uh, well let's say that's about trying to connect how about that that's a Seems what seems like a theme through through his movies, whether it's whether it's an anonymous steam baths of Yves Lamour, <laughs> or the, or the uh, watch salesman of uh, what time is it, or Goodbye Dragon Inn and its waterlogged cinema. 
Well, let's so rebels and a young god. Well, let's let's save more on that uh, for next time. Yeah. Well, that that brings us to the end of the latest episode of the last thing I saw, in which you learned the last things we saw. So I will be signing off here, along with my delightful pals, Devika and Clint. And join us again soon with, uh, you know, a, a wide variety of guests and non-guests. And lots of attractions, such as pinwheels and tubas, special features, if you will, extras. Maybe we'll do a commentary track for old episodes that goes over the podcast where we comment on the, on the things that we're saying while we're saying them. All that and more on the next The Last Thing I Saw. Thank you and good night. <laughs>